And Father God, we thank you so much for getting everybody here safely. We just pray that this weather would not um, do any harm. We thank you that you are a God who sees, as we'll be looking at this morning, that you see not only the outside, the external man, but that you first and foremost look at the heart. And thank you for your word, Father, that tells us how we might receive a new heart and then how we might keep our hearts pure and humble and obedient and righteous before you. And a book that tells us how we might avoid temptations that attack the weakness of our flesh. So we thank you, Father, that your Holy Spirit will be the teacher this morning. We just um, we pray that everything that will be done and said here will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight and that you might con- um, accomplish that which you please. For we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Our lesson t- entitled, um, our lesson number 35 is entitled Heart Righteousness, Part 1, Murder. So if you want to open up your Bibles, we'll be looking at Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26. The religious rulers of Israel, primarily we'll be talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, had grown very irate with the Lord Jesus by the time he presented this very famous Sermon on the Mount. They were angered with him about a number of reasons, one being that he, you know, supposedly blasphemed God. Of course he didn't because he is God. But the, the one that was the most embarrassing to the religious rulers was his deliberate disregard of their rabbinical observances and traditions and how irrefutable and how scriptural were his reasons for doing so, for breaking, for example, the Sabbath. However, in this next sec- section of the sermon, which is the largest section in the sermon, it goes from chapter 5, verse 21, to the end of the chapter, verse 48, it is the largest section. We're on section 4, entitled Reinterpretations of the Law. In this next section, the Lord was going to go even further in his argument against the religious rulers. He was going to unveil their deception with an extended commentary of his very shocking statement that we looked at last week in in chapter 5, verse 20. Remember when he said, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes, and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, Bible scholars refer to this portion of the sermon, I should put this back up, as the antithesis of the sermon because of the strong contrast that the Lord Jesus made with his own teaching regarding six different areas of Old Testament laws. So he contrasts his teaching with the rabbinical teaching that had been passed down from previous generations, referred to as them of old, and we'll get into that. He's not contradicting his teaching with what the Old Testament says. Make sure you understand that. He had just said, we looked at it last week, that he did not come to annul or destroy the law. So in this next section, when he reinterprets things, he's, he's not contradicting or correcting what God said. He is correcting what the rabbis interpreted God to have said. All right, so anyway, it's called the antithesis. And the six areas that we are going to be looking at, because the Lord dealt with them, are going to be today's lesson, the subject of murder. Next week, it gets juicier and juicier. Next week, (laughs) we'll be looking at adultery. And then the week after that, Uh, We'll be talking about divorce, and then we'll be talking about oath-making. 
you know, taking vows and, and oaths. Then we'll talk about retaliation, and then we'll talk about love. We'll end up on a good note. <laughs> we'll talk about love. All of these different areas were used <clears throat> by the Lord Jesus to demonstrate how godly righteousness is to exceed the righteousness which I should put in quotes, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, because their righteousness wasn't really righteousness, was it? All right, Jesus wanted his disciples and he wanted his followers to understand that the religion of Israel's spiritual leaders was devoid of saving faith. All of their pretentious piety, their man-made traditions, their Sabbath day parade of do's and don'ts, their, their boastful performances regarding all the external requirements of the law were doing absolutely zero, absolutely nothing to make them worthy enough to enter into king, uh, God's kingdom. Is there anything man can do to enter into God's kingdom? No, there's nothing they, that, and the, but they were trying, but they were absolutely getting nowhere. You see, a legalistic, rigid, rigidly orthodox religion such as that of the scribes and the Pharisees is not enough to bring a human soul into harmony with God. Their problem was that they had none of the beatific virtues. They did not see their helpless, sinful state, their poverty of spirit before God. They were destitute over any mournfulness regarding their sinful condition. They displayed no tenderness, no mercy toward their fellow man. In fact, they were known for their mercilessness. Mercilessness. It's a hard word to say. And they were known for their coldness toward other people. They had no love for their fellow man. And therefore, they were really serving more as stumbling blocks, not only to the common people, but to think of all the people and the nations around them, all the Romans and the Greeks and everybody else who was looking on, looking at them. They were a stumbling block. They were like salt that had lost its savor, for their influence had no power to preserve the world from corruption. There was a popular first century Jewish saying, which was this, quote, if only two people go to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other will be, what? A Pharisee, end of quote. That was their little saying. And the people believed it. They believed if, if anybody's going to make it to heaven, if only two make it, one will definitely be a scribe and one will be a Pharisee. The religious leaders had misinterpreted the scripture to the point that they had become convinced that God was obligated to give them a place in his kingdom because of their righteous devotion to all the religious rituals and the, cere you know, the ceremonies and, and all their other good works. If anybody was going to get there, certainly they would. They looked good to themselves because they were comparing themselves to their own devised standards of righteousness. You know, if I set up my own standards for righteousness and met them, I could, I could look pretty good to myself. I say, you know, I'll, I'll only write down things I know I can attain, <laughs> and then I'll compare myself to that little list, and I'll look pretty good. So they were comparing themselves to their own devised standards, and they were also, who do you think else they were comparing themselves with? Right. They were comparing themselves to, to other obviously sinful Jewish people, such as publicans. Remember that Pharisee standing in the temple saying, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that publican back there. They were comparing themselves to publicans and um, prostitutes and criminals and even the common people. 
they were comparing themselves, you know, well, we do, we know the law so much better than they do, so certainly we're going to make it to heaven. And of course they were comparing themselves to the many different types of pagan peoples all around them. And so in doing that, they felt sure that God had just had to be very impressed with them. You see, because their view of righteousness was external, their view of themselves was complementary. And they were doing just fine with this little system until an itinerant preacher came along who dared to confront them and their teaching head-on. He didn't pull any punches with them. You see, Pharisaic righteousness was the worst sort of attempted righteousness according to Jesus. The, the, the righteousness, quote-unquote again, that he hates the most is pretentious religious righteousness. And so he attacked them. He said more harsh words against these people than he did anyone else. <clears throat> In our study of his life, we're going to find him telling the scribes and the Pharisees that they were really thieves and they were self-indulgent, unclean, lawless murderers. They were enemies of God's true prophets. Just look at Matthew 23 and you'll see some of the scathing things that he says to these uh, religious rulers. He's, he called them hypocrites over and over again. Woe unto you, hypocrites. He, he said that they were uh, like um, unclean cups. They, they look clean on the outside. Their cups were clean on the outside, but inside the cup, they were, they were full of extortion and excess. They were filthy on the inside. What else did he call them? Whited sepulchers that were, you know, right, that, that were white and pretty on the outside, but inside they were full of uh, dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Then he accused them in Luke 16, 15, as you see on this transparency, of justifying themselves before men. But he said God knew their hearts, and that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. You know, there are many people just like the scribes and the Pharisees. There have been down through the ages, and there are today, many people just like them. There are religious people who work very hard at establishing their own form of righteousness so that they can feel good about themselves. But the very last thing that they really want is to submit to a God who requests that they clean up their inner being as well as they have cleaned up their outward lives. It says in Romans 10.3, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That's in Romans 10.3. I didn't put that up there, did I? Uh, the prophet uh, Hosea had pointed out that which constituted the very essence of Phariseeism, or religious, what, what, what could we call it, religionism, <laughs> when he said that Israel was an empty vine. People who are religious but don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ are really like an empty vine, just as he called Israel. He said she was an empty vine which only brought fruit to herself. Actually, in that scripture, it says unto himself. Despite all of their boasting of their great service for the Lord, their righteousness was nothing more than the fruit of their own efforts to keep the law according to their own ideas 
and really for their own selfish benefit, you know, for their own pride, for their own acclaim, for their own purposes. Their brand of righteousness could really be no better than they themselves were. In all of their efforts to make themselves holy, they were actually working at bringing a clean thing out of something unclean. You can't do that. You can't bring something clean out of something that is unclean, can you? And that's exactly what anybody who tries to work their way to God is trying to do. You see, God is holy. Can we attain to God, to being God? God is holy, so we can't ever become like God because we can't ever become God. Well, the same thing is true with God's law. God's law, like himself, is holy. So it is impossible for the sinful nature of man to attain to such holiness in his own efforts. We can't possibly ever attain the righteousness of the law. The law is perfect. The law is holy. So no matter how much we try, we will always, always fall short. All of our righteousnesses are as what? Exactly. As filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6 says. So, and the, so the only way we can become righteous is through Christ. And, you know, believing in what he did for us on the cross... And uh, then, in faith, we, at, we invite him into our heart as our Lord and Savior, and he imputes to us his righteousness. But we must come to him knowing, that's going back to the Beatitudes again, knowing that apart from him, we, are, we have poverty of spirit. We're hopeless. We're helpless apart from him. We must mourn over our sinful condition. We must be meek. We must be humble and fall before him and say, please save me. So, you know, go back, it always goes back to the Beatitudes. So anyway, in this next major portion of the sermon, Jesus sought to teach his listeners that the empty religion that they had been taught to obey and practice was actually put in place of God's word and quite often even directly contradicted God's intended purposes for his word. The word of God has always, always taught that if righteousness does not begin in the heart, it does not exist at all. Micah 6, verses 6 to 8 says this, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? And then he goes on, he says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. You know, it doesn't care about all the sacrifices and offerings if the heart isn't right before him. Throughout the Old Testament, God, over and over again, made it clear that his biggest issue was not with man's external works, you know, the offerings of his own hands. He began that right from the beginning with who? Whose offering did he refuse? Cain's. Cain tried to offer God his own, the efforts of his own work, hands, the fruit of the ground, the fruit of his own labor, and God didn't accept it. You know, you have to do things God's way. And Abel did, and of course Cain was angry, talking about anger, that's where we're going to head. And he also murdered. He was the first murderer, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. But the biggest issue has always been the matter of the heart attitude. David, who was a man after God's own heart, he understood this. In advising his son Solomon, he said, 
And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart, meaning a whole heart, and with a willing mind. And then he said, For the Lord searcheth all hearts, and understandeth all the imagination of the thoughts. Hanani, the prophet who spoke to um, King Asa, Asa, said he understood you know, about the heart. He said to King Asa of Judah, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him, meaning whole. Of course, none of us have a perfect heart. We do positionally speaking, but practically in our daily walk, we're working on that, aren't we? And then there were the words that you all know, the words of, um, of uh, God to, to Samuel. You know, remember Samuel was supposed to appoint the next king, and he went through all of Jesse's sons, but he started, he thought for sure that Eliab, the eldest son, was to be the Lord's anointed because he was so tall and he was so handsome. But the Lord said to Samuel, Look not on his countenance, meaning his face, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for the man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the, on the heart. That's 1 Samuel 16, 7. A good verse to teach your children. A central truth, then, of the scripture is that God is first and foremost and, uh, interested and concerned with what a man or a woman is like on the inside. <clears throat> and as I said, this was the whole message of the Old Testament. It was the whole message that we discussed as we looked at the Beatitudes. A true kingdom citizen will be righteous inwardly. But the Jews, when I say the Jews, you know I speak of the religious rulers. The Jews have been taught, or the Jews in this case, I meant the people. The people have been taught a distortion of God's truth. They were taught <clears throat> that such internal issues as anger and hatred uh, and jealousy, things like that, were minor faults which would not be severely judged by God. Uh, especially if a person was very faithful to present his offerings and his sacrifices and to observe all the other duties of their religion, then God would just kind of you know, turn away and he wouldn't really punish those inward problems. So they, they were taught wrong. But the Lord's teaching here in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 48, told the people con the contrary. We'll see over and over again, he says, Ye have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. Six times he's going to say that in this passage. God is just as concerned with anger and with jealousy and with hatred and covetousness and lust as he is with their outward manifestations of such things as murder and adultery and divorce, etc. So let's look now at what the Lord Jesus had to say, first of all, about, about heart righteousness with regard to murder. And uh, we will look at verses 21 and just the first part of verse 22 to begin with. Let me read those to you. Verse 21, he says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. 
But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. All right, let's stop right there for, for now. The first illustration that the Lord used in this heart righteousness section of the sermon came from the sixth commandment in the Decalogue, which is another term for the Ten Commandments, right? And that is, thou shalt not kill, Exodus 20, verse 13. Now, the only message that the Pharisees had taught the people about murder was a prohibition against the actual act of murder, you know, the actual physical act, which they said would put one in danger of, of the death sentence, the judgment. However, Christ went on to say, you know, when he said, but I say unto you, he, he goes on to say that the moral law regarding murder in its true and in its full meaning not only prohibited the overt act of murder, actually killing somebody, but also every evil working of the heart that leads up to murder. This not only put man in danger of the judgment of the death penalty, but in danger of hell. As you'll see, he says at the end of verse 22, in danger of hell fire. So what he's saying here is any sin, whether internal or external, results in eternal separation from God. That's nothing new for us to understand, is it? Any, any sin, even just the tiniest little wrong thought, is a sin enough to send us to hell. And that's what he's saying here. So, thou shalt not kill includes within it, thou shalt not hate. Thou shalt not be angry, you know, without just a just cause. Thou shalt not hate. In fact, speaking through Moses, God had actually said this. This is also in, in the books of Moses, in Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. God said, thou shalt not hate thy brother. In thine heart thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So, but see, the, the, the Jews weren't teaching that to the people. They were just saying, thou shalt not kill. You know, they didn't get into the, the inner heart business of hatred and anger. The truth that the Lord spoke now in verses 21 and 22 were the same. They were the same that of those that had been spoken by God through the prophets. So there's no, no contradiction here. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill. He's actually intensifying it and, and expand, he's, um, he's interpreting it correctly for the people. But, uh, but, but these things had become obscure over the years because of the hardness of men's hearts and the, and the love of sin. So they had been taught wrong by their, by their supposed spiritual leaders. Now some questions for you. Is the one who commits the act of murder the only one who is guilty before God? As far as that law is concerned, thou shalt not kill. Is the, only the one who commits the actual act of murder guilty? What about the person who wants to kill someone but is perhaps stopped by some sort of interference, something that happens. What about the person who wants to kill another human being but is scared to do so? They really want to, but they're scared that if they did so, they would be, they would be the ones that would suffer from the consequences of their sin. What about the person who hires another person to do his killing for him? 
Are such people innocent simply because they didn't actually commit the murder? What about David, King David? He didn't actually kill Bathsheba's husband, did he, with his own hands? But God, God said his hands were bloody. So God saw him just as guilty as the, you know, well, he wasn't actually murdered. He was killed in warfare, and that's a different story. He's talking about murder here, not killing, because there obviously are justified killings in self-defense, in warfare, things like that. But the Old, the Old Testament would answer these questions saying, no. You know, these people are not innocent of murder. The one who wants to but is stopped, or the one that hires somebody, or the one who um, is just scared of his own consequences. God would say, does say in the Old Testament, they are not innocent. They are guilty. And uh, Jesus says, no, they are not innocent. They are guilty. And even the New Testament, well, this is the New Testament, but elsewhere in the New Testament, it tells us the same answer. No, they are not innocent. In 1 John 3.15, it says, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. So Old Testament, Jesus, New Testament all say no. That person is just as guilty as a murderer. But the, you see, the scribes and the Pharisees would say yes, that this person is innocent. And in doing so, they were guilty of having restricted the full scope of God's word regarding murder. And they were also guilty of having removed a very healthy fear of the divine judgment to come when God would not only judge the actual deeds of men, but he would lay bare their innermost thoughts as well. And he would judge both the murderer and the murderer in desire as guilty. See, they were removing that fear from the people, and that was a healthy fear to have. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, says this, quote, There was no excuse for the fact that in their interpretation of the Sixth Commandment, the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day, in agreement with the men of long ago, were omitting the main lesson. Moses had emphasized love for God and for man. Not only that, but the very first domestic quarrel narrative, the story of Cain and Abel, had pointed up the evil of jealous anger as being the root of murder. Accordingly, Jesus, in interpreting the sixth commandment as he does, far from annulling it, is showing what it had meant from the very beginning. End of quote. Now, who did the Lord refer to when he said, ye have heard that it was said by them of old, of old time. Who is he referring to there? Well, we know that he could not have been speaking of God his Father. Because he wouldn't, said, he wouldn't have said them. That's plural. And whenever he quoted from God, he would say, it is written. Or thus saith the Lord. Neither would he have been speaking of Moses for the same reason because he wouldn't have used them for Moses. And whenever he did quote Moses, he would say, Moses said. Or if he quoted you know, somebody, some other prophet, he usually would say their name. Or again, he would say, it is written. So we know that it doesn't refer to God or to Moses. It refers to here, um, it's a reference to Israel's teachers of the law. The rabbis of generations past were frequently referred to in these days as the fathers of iniquity, not iniquity, <laughs> maybe that should have been, the fathers of antiquity, 
They were referred to as the fathers of antiquity or the men of long ago. They were referred to as the ancients. I'm not talking about the fathers of the faith like Abraham and Jacob. I'm talking about the, the rabbis of ancient days. So Jesus was contrasting his teaching, which was the true teaching of the Old Testament, with the Jewish written and oral traditions that had so terribly corrupted God's original meaning. Now, I want you to understand this truth. Antiquity and tradition are not infallible marks of true doctrine. Did you get that? Just because maybe your church has always done it this way, or the ancient fathers of of the, the denomination have always done it this way, or uh, this is our heritage, or this is our custom. That is not an infallible truth, or mark, excuse me, of true doctrine. What matters is what the Bible says. If, if traditions and teachings and, and rituals and whatever else disagree with what the Bible has to say, then it doesn't matter how long they've been around. It doesn't matter how long we've always done it this way. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how highly you esteem those who teach and propagate them. They are unbiblical, and therefore they are wrong. Do you understand that? And this is where so many people have such a hard time. Well, I've always been in this church. I can't leave this church, even though I've learned that what they're teaching is wrong. Yes, you can, and you should. If it doesn't agree with this book, get out of there. It's that simple. I know, maybe family's always been there. It's not always simple, but it's what you need to do. Now, unfortunately for the common people of the nation of Israel, what is it? Oh, oh, I've never heard that before. Yeah, I thought it was a, I thought it was maybe a tornado. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of my childhood. When did you ever grow up in a little town where they always blew a whistle at twelve noon? I did up in Illinois. My little at twelve noon, the whistle. Was, that's when. <laughs> Ooh, I hope it's none of your homes. <laughs> did you answer that phone, whoever? T- <laughs> mm. Uh, All right. Anyway, let's get back to our lesson. Unfortunately for the common people of Israel, there was ample opportunity for the religious rulers to misteach them and corrupt God's law to their own liking because the rank and file of the common people, the Jewish people, were not able to read the Old Testament scriptures. You know, now we're not talking New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. We're still talking Old Testament You know how blessed we are for everyone in this room probably has a copy on their lap of the scriptures. We are so blessed. Don't ever, ever take it for granted. There are many people in the world today who do not have a copy of God's word. And don't even, I mean, a lot of other people don't have it in their own language. Uh, But they, they were in that situation. You see, during and after the time of Israel's captivity in Babylon, which was around 600 to 500 B.C., the Jewish people, by and large, had forgotten their own language. They had forgotten how to speak and read Hebrew. They were over there in Babylon. They were taken captives, and so they, they picked up their language. 
they'd been there for 70 years, so that's, you know, what they learned to speak. And um, so they couldn't read or understand the predominantly Hebrew Bible. Now, so and what they spoke was called Chaldee, and it was sort of a mixture, and it, it became what we know as Aramaic. That's where Aramaic, which is sort of a Syrian language or a Chaldean kind of a language, it's, it's uh, a Semitic language. It's sort of, it's similar to Hebrew, but it's just enough different that you can't understand everything. It would be kind of comparable to Spanish and Portuguese. You know, they're similar, they both are Latin-based, but I know I took four years of Spanish, and when I went to Brazil, I, I was at a loss. I couldn't understand the people speaking port Portuguese very well. So that was the, the, the difference between Aramaic and Hebrew. It was kind of similar like that. Now, there were parts, there are parts of the Old Testament that are written in Aramaic, and this makes sense. They are those books from Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. You know, those people were involved in that captivity, so they learned Aramaic, and a part, big part of Daniel is written in Aramaic, and parts of Ezra and Jeremiah are in Aramaic. Um, but the majority of the Old Testament is in Hebrew. And, of course, by the time of Christ, they did have the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was written about, it was translated about 250 years before Christ. So there was the Hebrew Old Testament and there was the Greek Old Testament. But most of the Jews, the vast majority of the Jewish people, didn't speak Greek or Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. That's why the, the Passion play that you, a lot of you have seen, I have never seen it, not the play, but the movie. I guess they, they, in the whole thing, they speak Aramaic. And um, Mel Gibson had to go and study, the, you know, he put people to work really hard on studying the Aramaic language. There is one little group of people who still speak Aramaic in the world today. But so they couldn't read the Bible in their own language. Furthermore, you have to understand that this was before printing presses. And uh, every Bible that was ever written had to be handwritten out. The long, can you imagine if you had to write the scriptures by hand, longhand, all out? So there were not very many copies of the Old Testament around. They were, they, they were written on scrolls, and for one thing, the scrolls, scrolls were big and very bulky, and they were extremely expensive because they had been handwritten. And so hardly anyone had access to a copy of God's Word other than the religious rulers. You know, they would have a, the big scrolls in the synagogues, and in the scribal schools, the rabbinical schools, they'd have a big scroll. But that, the regular people didn't have copies of God's word. So it was the duty of those learned men, the rabbis and, and the scribes, to acquaint the people with the word of God. Now they could have, if they had cared enough to do so, they could have made a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Aramaic so that the majority of the people could understand it. But instead, these proud and selfish rulers enjoyed their position of being relied upon so much and reverenced so much by the people, you know, as being the only ones who could read and understand. Now, they did study the Hebrew language, and they, so they could read the Bible, the Old Testament, and they could understand it. And the people needed them to interpret it for them. You see, even when they would read the Bible, the the scrolls in the synagogue, what language did they read them in? No. They read them in the Hebrew. So the people would be sitting out there. It would be like if I was speaking to you in a foreign language when I read from the scripture. And then the rabbi would give his interpretation of what he had just said. And he would give that in Aramaic so they'd understand. But when he read the actual scripture, he read it in the Hebrew. 
So they were, you see, the position they were in, they were totally dependent on what their, what their, um, their religious rulers were telling them. Instead of preparing a translation that could be read by the masses at large, they relished their position of prestige for being the only ones who could read and then interpret to the people the word of God. They really wanted to keep the people in ignorance because this kept matters in their own hands and exalted their own positions. The, the respect of the people... By the way, I wanted to throw in um, Nehemiah 8.8. 8. If you want to take a peek over there sometime, Nehemiah 8.8 8 shows us this, that... When fi- you know, Ezra had such a zeal for the scripture, after they came back from captivity, it says that Ezra opened up the, the scripture and he read to the people the Old Testament and then it had to be interpreted for them. So this gives you an example of what we're talking about. But he did interpret it for them correctly. All right, so the people didn't have anything against which, against which to test the validity of what their leaders were teaching them. And then, so by the time of Christ, it had become very common for the the rabbis and and the scribes and the other religious rulers, the Pharisees, um, to teach from the Talmud. Oh, I guess I should keep that back up there. It had become common for them to teach from the Talmud, which was a huge encyclopedic collection of rabbinical traditions. It was actually... Uh, it consisted of 523 books that were put into 22 volumes, just like uh, an encyclopedia. And all of it was traditions. Remember I told you how many chapters were just on Sabbath laws um, and commentary on the Torah. Now, the Torah was the first five books of Moses. The, the word Torah is equivalent with our word Pentateuch. Pentateuch comes from the Greek meaning five. That's the, pendi is the Greek word for five. And it's talking about the first five books of Moses. The books of Moses are the Pentateuch or the Torah. The Talmud was all the commentary on the Torah. And all these oral, originally there was nothing but oral tradition that was passed down from generation to generation on what the Torah meant. And that oral tradition was referred to as the halakha. But you see, in time, they took the oral traditions and they wrote them down and then they expanded and this rabbi said this and this. So they kept adding to that commentary until, as I said, it was 22 volumes long and it's called the Talmud. And so most of the time, when the people sat in the synagogues and heard their rulers teach to them, they weren't teaching them from the scripture. They were teaching them from the Talmud. And one of the things that really amazed the people with Jesus' teaching was that he taught as one having his own authority rather than as their rulers who were always quoting from this tradition or from this ancient father and what he said or from this rabbi. You get it? Etc. Etc. So anyway, the conditions. You feel sorry for the, the people, don't you? I mean, they didn't know. They, were, they had to rely on the religious rulers, and they trusted them. They didn't know that they weren't telling them the right, the truth. So this condition of Judaism at the time of the Lord was really very similar, if you think about it, to that of the church in the, in the early 16th century. The common people called the laity, you know, the common people did not have a copy of the scriptures in their own language back in the early 1600s or 1500s. After the persecution of the church, 
um, the early church by the Roman, the Roman emperors. Remember, there was that succession, Nero, and all those Roman emperors who persecuted the church so terribly. Well, after that persecution was over, everything regarding the scripture, now we're talking Old and New Testaments, was written in Latin with very few common people understanding. Most of the common people did not know Latin. And, of course, again, Bibles were very, very scarce to come by, much less in a language that the people could read. So the people, again, just like, you know, history repeating itself, the people had to rely on those in the clergy who had come to be known as priests, which is an Old Testament terminology. Um, They had to rely on their priests to teach them because they had no Bibles themselves by which to judge what they were being taught. They had no idea, really, if, if what the priests taught them was scriptural or not. In time, they didn't even know if being scriptural was something important, as long as it was what the church taught. They assumed that the Bible taught what the ter- church taught. And the church gradually replaced its own authority over that of Scripture. It, and it departed further and further from the truth, and it plunged the world into what is known as the Dark Ages. Do you ever think why it's called the Dark Ages? <laughs> because the light was hit, hidden under a bushel. The light is the Word of God. This was the period in church history which is represented by the church of Thyatira. If you look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. And he referred to it as the depths of Satan. Sounds pretty harsh, but those are Jesus' words, the depths of Satan. There was very little light. Now, there were small pockets of true believers scattered here and there. And maybe they'd you know, have a little copy of God's word, which they would hide and, and treasure. The most wonderful contribution of the Protestant Reformation was that it gave the Bible back to the people and in their own language. Again, I tell you, do you know how privileged we are and how many people die so that you and I can have a copy of God's Word? We are so privileged. It was the truth that brought light back into the world following the Dark Ages. Now, because the Pharisees had interpreted righteous living to be totally external. They had a self-confident, highly favorable, but fatally erroneous view of themselves. And this is nowhere more apparent than in their attitude toward Jesus Christ himself. How could they perceive of themselves as being innocent when they were plotting to murder him? and primarily because of their hatred of him and their jealousy of him. You see, they saw themselves as innocent in the murder of Christ because their own hands had not physically nailed him to the cross. You know, they actually preferred letting a murderer go and crucifying him. They let Barabbas, who was a murderer, go. And, and they killed Jesus totally innocent instead. You see, because they hated Jesus. He had messed up their traditions. He, he had spoiled their, their prestige. He had, he had put a damper on their prestige. He had threatened their feelings of security, and so they, they murdered him. And yet they saw themselves as righteous. 
even in spite of that. The Lord's words would not only be convicting to any listening members of the religious establishment who were standing there perhaps listening to his Sermon on the Mount, but also they would reveal to his other listeners that while they in their own minds condemned others as great transgressors, they themselves were also guilty of harboring malice and hatred in their own hearts. You know, from the place that they would have been assembled to hear Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount, the people could look across the Sea of Galilee to the country of Bashan, which was a rather lonely place with lots of wooded hills and wild gorges where it was uh, known that many criminals of all types would hide themselves. Now, such robbers and murderers were greatly denounced by the people as evildoers. And, of course, they were. They were evildoers. However, what was hypocritical was that the people could see the evil in those outright criminals but they could not see their own bitter hatred of their Roman oppressors as sin. They did not see the contempt that they really had for all pagan peoples who they considered less than dogs as sin. They did not see their hateful attitude toward even their own half-brothers, the Samaritans, as sin, or the malice they had um, toward their own countrymen, who did not conform to their own ways and their own ideas as sin. Think of all their prejudices. For example, even godly Nathaniel uh, had said, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? How did the people treat uh, people, publicans like Levi, who became Matthew? How did they treat them? They hated them. How did they treat prostitutes? How did they even treat handicapped people? The Jewish people were notorious for despising those who were not Jewish. They, they, they should have been reaching out to the pagan peoples of the world. And after all, look at the advantage they had. God had actually put the Romans in their own backyard. They had such a, a wonderful divine opportunity to witness. Like Paul, every time he was chained to another Roman guard, he'd give him the gospel. Here the Jews had, had all these pagan peoples, and, and they would travel through Israel because was, there was main crossroads there. And so they should have been reaching out to all these people. They were the ones that had the truth. They were the ones who worshipped the one and true, right, right God, Jehovah God. They were the ones who had the Old Testament scripture. They should have been bringing many to a saving knowledge of God and his promised Redeemer. Instead, they cherished their malice and their hatred toward their neighbors and their oppressors and their half-brothers, the Samaritans, and even their own full brothers who were different from themselves. So what a shock the Lord's statement of Matthew 5.22 must have been to such people. He said, But I say unto you that whosoever is guilty with his, is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And here he's speaking of more than just the judgment of the death sentence. He's speaking of the judgment. So with royal authority, Jesus swept away all the accumulated rabbinical rubbish and placed God's law before the people in all of its great majesty and fullness and its holiness. He resharpened the double-edged sword of God's word that had been blunted by faulty interpretation. He declared that a person who is guilty of unjustified anger is also guilty of murder and is deserving of a murderer's punishment. Thus, 
a model, law-abiding, outwardly upright citizen can be as guilty before God as someone on death's row. Did you know that? Now, there are degrees of punishment, but we're still, both of us equally, guilty before God and deserving of hell's fire. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. Now, the kind of anger that Jesus spoke about is not the righteous indignation type of anger that a believer should have. The righteous indignation kind, like he had, you know, when they had made his father's house into a den of thieves. And remember the time it actually says Jesus was angry, the one and only time it uses that word about him. In Mark 3, 5, he was angry over the hardness of hearts of the Pharisees when he was going to heal that man with the withered right hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. That made him angry, their attitude. Um, So this isn't the kind of anger. That's good anger. It's right. It says in um, Ephesians 4, 26, Be ye angry and sin not. It is right and it is good to be angry at what? At sin. And at all those things that bring dishonor to God. However, the anger of which Jesus is speaking about in our current passage is a selfish anger. (laughs) Henry, don't you ever talk that way about my cooking again. You know, it's a (laughs) self-centered. It's a self-centered result of something that has been said or done to someone personally. Something that has offended or hurt our egos, and then we, you know, lash out in in anger. It's a carnal result of being irritated or displeased or not getting our own way. It's, It's a brooding and a simmering anger that is nurtured when it is not dealt with. It's holding a grudge. It's allowing a root of bitterness to be fertilized. It's refusing to forgive. It's holding on to resentments. Resentment. It is having a stubbornness that refuses to reconcile this is the anger of the heart that makes one a murderer in the sight of God you see unholy anger issues from the sin of pride and it seeks to harm the one that it's directed against on the other hand holy anger issues from a heart of love you know love of righteousness and it has at its heart the good of the one whom it is directed against. The problem with most of us is that we are far too quick to get uh, angry over a personal affront. And we are far too slow to get angry over sin and evil and injustice. Oh, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to have to get this all on the tape, so if you have to leave, you'll have to leave, but I'm not going to make it. (laughs) All right, let's look at verse 22b. The unrighteousness of mouthing off, where he says, uh, and, in the middle of the verse, you see where he says, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. All right, stop right there. The Lord goes on here to say that even calling someone Raka is equivalent to murder. Now, I know you and I don't run around saying, you Raka. (laughs) It's a good thing you don't, because it's a nasty word. It is a word that was so untranslatable. It's an Aramaic word, but it was so untranslatable that they just left it that way. They just, you know, it just leaves it raka because there isn't a comparable English word for it. It's commentators say it's it's equivalent to like combining you numbskull, you blockhead, you you bonehead, (laughs) brainless idiot. You know, kind of putting all those things together. It's really a very derogatory name. 
slandering someone who is made in the image of God, which of course all human beings are, is equivalent to slandering who? God himself. It's the, it's the same thing. When we call someone worthless and, and with a heart of hatred, when we do it that um, regardless of what term we use, we are really showing contempt and derision toward that individual. And that is the very spirit that leads to murder. Murder of the heart, if not murder of the hands. You know, there are ways of treating people that are just as ugly as murdering them. You know that, don't you? Many people have been destroyed by words without having to be literally murdered. <clears throat> their spirit for life is murdered. Their, their self-value is murdered. We can destroy with our words, we can destroy a person's reputation, we can destroy someone's confidence. We have to be careful with our children, don't we, in this regard. We can destroy someone's happiness just by mouthing off with unjustified criticism or malicious gossip or backbiting, etc. So the Lord's intent here was to teach that the commandment, thou shalt not kill, entails a whole lot more than just destroying physical life. It also involves destroying the spirit of another human being. All right, let's quickly look at the end of that verse where he says, But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, in using multiple examples here to make his point, the Lord Jesus also said at the end of verse 22 that whoever would say, Thou fool, would be in danger of hell's fire. The Greek word for fool comes from the, uh, the word fool comes from the Greek word moros. And when I say that, do, I, do you hear another word? Moros, moron. It comes from the, the, word where, the word we get moron from, meaning stupid. And the Hebrew counterpart of this word includes the, ideal, the idea of ungodliness. So the term is an expression of abuse. It, it's said maliciously. You, have to, you know, there are different ways of saying something. You could say to somebody, oh, you fool, you know. But if you say, you fool, there's a big difference, isn't there? <laughs> it's the latter one. You could see I have a lot of practice. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I, did that. I did that too well, didn't I? <laughs> so it, it refers to maliciously. You know, with bitterness and with hatred, maligning or condemning someone's character. Here we're going right to the, the heart, you know, the, the character of the person. So again then, we are confronted with not only the actual act of murder, but with all the entanglements and all the feelings of the heart and ultimately with the spirit. Now you know Jesus used the word fool. God used the word fool. Um, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But they didn't do so out of anger or malice. A benevolent desire to make men sensible in their folly is a good thing. But reviling someone with a, revengeful, with, a, with a hateful rage is evil. So what about your condition, the condition of your heart in this matter? How do you react to those people who do and say things that irritate you or hurt you or damage your ego or who have not done things the way that you would like them done? Are you quick to lose your temper? and slash out at them with cutting words? Have you ever wished that someone was dead? I did, I did. I have to admit, I had. I used to wish many times my father would die. It's awful, but I did. 
Have you ever murdered someone in your mind? Or said, drop dead? Or go to you know where? Or have you ever said, I wish God would just strike you dead with lightning? Awful things. We do them. Do hurtful words flow out of your mouth far too freely? If so, then Jesus tells us from the pages of Scripture here that this makes us just as guilty of murder and as deserving of hell's fire as any bloodthirsty criminal. Now, you know what that means? It means that not a single one of us would ever avoid the eternal flames of fire if it were just left up to us to meet God's holy standards of righteousness. If anyone should not be smug or have a superior attitude toward other people, you know who it should be? The Christian. (laughs) Because if there is anyone who ought to know how sinful their own heart is, it is the one who understands the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially here in the Sermon on the Mount. All right, very quickly, let's look at... (laughs) I can't believe it. I only have one more page, so if you can just... We're going to move to the second part of our outline. Our hearts, I didn't even tell you about our outline, but it's in your books. We looked at our heart's position before God. Now we're going to look at our heart's presentation to God. Let's look at verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. You know, first of all, in verse 22, we were taught about our unrighteous anger toward our brother. And now we're being taught the reverse situation. Our brother has something against us. And in either case, the Lord is telling us that we are to manifest the beatific virtue of being a peacemaker by doing all that we can to bring reconciliation, regardless of who is initially responsible for the conflict. You know, and usually there's... It takes two to tango. There's usually guilt on both sides. But whenever there's a breach in a relationship, we should determine to make reconciliation and to rid ourselves of any anger, bitterness before we come to present our worship to God. And this was something that the Lord repeatedly spoke about to the people in the Old Testament. He said that he despised the religious fasts of Israel because she, she was so concerned about all the fast days and celebrating them But she omitted those acts of mercy which he required, and instead she was guilty of evil treatment of her fellow man, as we just talked about. He asked them to what purpose were the multitude of their sacrifices and their many prayers when they were so cruelly oppressing even their own brethren. You see, their worship to him, when their hearts were so evil, their worship was an abomination to him, he said in Isaiah 1, verses 11 to 15. So Jesus teaches that it's not just enough to abstain from vice. We must also practice virtue. He shows us, you see what he's doing here in the sermon, especially in this section. He is showing us the superiority of divine laws over human laws. Man's law, human law, would tell us that it's sufficient for us not to commit a crime. We can all stay out of jail if we don't commit a crime. Uh, For example, a man is... Innocent of murder if he's never taken somebody's life. But it doesn't matter if he has hatred in his heart toward that person. Now, the superiority of God's law is that God's law requires not only abstaining from the vice, the actual action of of murder, but it also must include the positive aspect of practicing virtue. You know, going to someone 
with whom we have a problem or who has a problem with us and making reconciliation with them or at least trying to, doing all that we can to attempt to to, uh, reconcile. If God seems far away, you know, when you pray to him, if your prayers seem hollow and if the heavens seem like brass and it just seems like God is deaf to your prayers, you need to examine yourselves. You need to search your heart and all think of all your relationships and perhaps there's someone that pops into your mind who you know you are not reconciled to and when he says brother he's speaking not just christian brothers he's speaking you know the broad term for brothers have you refused perhaps to swallow your pride and go to someone to ask forgiveness if you know there's a breach in your relationship even if you know that you are the innocent party And you have been wronged. Are you justifying, perhaps, your unreconciled position by simply being silent? Saying, well, I won't keep the the battle going. I'll just be silent. Or simply by avoiding that someone, perhaps even for years and years. Well, you know, Jesus didn't tell us to just hold our tongue or to just keep our distance, did he? He said, go to that one. Even if the other person rejects your peacemaking effort or spits on you or, or laughs in your face or wrongs, wrongs you even further. And even if they were the guilty one in the first place. You see, he doesn't make things easy for us, does he? But then neither did he make things easy for himself, did he? There was a breach between man and God. And he could have kept silent in heaven. He could have kept his distance in heaven. He could have said, well, they're the wrong ones, not me. I'm not going to go to them. They'll spit on me. They'll laugh at me. They'll mock me. They'll even kill me. I'm not going to do it. But he did it, didn't he? He did it anyway because he wanted us to be reconciled back to him. Paul says, why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded. You see, he's saying there, that's in second, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 7, he's saying it's better for the Christian to suffer injustice than to stand up for his rights in such a way that will bring shame to the body of Christ. All right, there's so much more I could say. Let's just look at the last two verses real quickly. Verse 25 and 26, reconciliation should precede judgment. He says, agree with thine adversary quickly. Don't let any time elapse. You know, maybe already too much time has elapsed. Maybe your person is already gone. In which case, if you cannot make reconciliation with somebody who's already left this earth, you, you need to make reconciliation between you and God and make things right in your own heart by forgiving that person. Okay, but he says here, do it quickly while thou art in the way with him. So in other words, if that person is still here, take care of this matter today, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge. There might be such a situation where that person is getting so angry if you've, if you've done something to them that he's going to take it to the court. So you need to settle out of court, really, is what he's saying here. And he says, And the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the other most farling. His advice here is to do whatever, it needs, whatever needs to be done in the matter of reconciliation and to do so immediately. None of us knows when we might be brought face to face with the judge, who is the judge with a capital J. 
God. And the person who does not attempt to be reconciled with an offended brother or sister will pay a price, perhaps in earthly chastisement or in eternal loss of reward. We will pay a price for deliberate disobedience to God. So it's God who is commanding us to get right and to fix that broken relationship with your spouse, maybe with an ex-spouse, maybe with your sister, maybe with your brother, maybe with your one-time friend, maybe with your father, maybe with your mother. I don't know who it could be. But settle it now, he tells us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We may not be here tomorrow to make amends. And you may have to go into eternity with unresolved sin. So he says, agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him. And that's what that verse means, by the way, verse 26. The um, Catholic Church uses that verse to teach purgatory, but that is not what it is teaching at all. All right, let's close in prayer. Thank you for your patience. Father, we thank you that your word pierces to the deepest and and to the most hidden and the most difficult secrets that each of us has in our own hearts. We thank you, Father, that your word tells us that there are no limits to what we should do in order to be reconciled with one another. So, Lord, make us dissatisfied with, with mere silence and, and with the status quo of any broken relationships that we might have uh, and enable us by your spirit to be willing to suffer even when we are not the guilty party for we are only then suffering in just such a small way what our Lord Jesus Christ suffered on our behalf. Father, we ask that you would give us the conviction and the strength as your children to be willing to go to the one with whom we have been alienated or to the one with whom we are angry or embittered or whatever and to apologize and ask for forgiveness. And do whatever is necessary in our minds, or in their minds, really, to bring about reconciliation. Through, you, through our obedience, Lord, we know that you will be glorified. And Father, we realize, too, through studying this sermon, that it is absolutely impossible, impossible, totally, for us on our own to ever meet your absolutely perfect standards of righteousness. So thank you, through all these lessons, for shattering our own self-righteous attitudes and, and perhaps any misconceptions and, and driving us instead to the Lord Jesus Christ who alone can make us righteous and acceptable to you and in whose name we pray.